You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Tardigrade malware infests the U.S. biomanufacturing sector. GoDaddy suffers a significant data breach. A Gizmodo-led consortium will review and release the Facebook papers. Ben Yellen on our privacy rights during emergency situations. Our guest today is Rick Longenecker of Open Systems to discuss how ransomware attacks represent the number one threat for universities. And the NSO Group may not recover from current controversy over its Pegasus Intercept tool. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Trey Hester with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, November 23rd, 2021. BioISAC, the Bioeconomy Information Sharing and Analysis Center, yesterday released a report on malware it calls Tardigrade, named after the moss piglet, or, if you prefer, water bear microanimal, and which it describes as the work of an advanced persistent threat, that is, a nation-state intelligence service. Tardigrade appeared this spring when it hit BioBright's manufacturing facility. It resurfaced in an October attack. There are some similarities with the smoke loader malware, familiar since 2011, and those similarities are enough for BioISAC to assess Tardigrade as a member of the smoke loader family. Smoke loader, which MITRE calls a malicious bot application that can be used to load other malware, has been involved with what BioISAC describes as, quote, multi-purpose tools that include key logging, information theft, botnet support, and backdoor access, end quote. But there are some significant differences that show Tardigrade as having evolved beyond its parent malware. Quote, previous smoke loader versions were externally directed, dependent on CNC infrastructure, end quote, BioISAC says, whereas, quote, this Tardigrade version is far more autonomous, able to decide on lateral movement based on internal logic, end quote. It's also good at immediate privilege escalation to the highest level. And tardigrade is more than polymorphic malware. It is, Biosec says, metamorphic, by which they mean it seems to be able to recompile the loader from memory without leaving a consistent signature. Recompiling occurs after a network connection in the wild that could be a call to a command and control server to download and execute the compiler. This gives the malware an unusual level of autonomy. The malware is installed either by infected email software, malicious plugins, malvertising, general network infection, or contaminated removable media like USB drives. Wired says tardigrades seemed curiously indifferent to whether they were actually paid. 
Tardigrade proved more advanced than it appeared, evasive, persistent, and clearly interested in more than ransom. BioISAC says the malware is spreading through the biomedical sector, which suggests that some intelligence service is actively scouting the U.S. biomedical industry. There's no further attribution available at this time. While which nation-state might be responsible for Tardigrade, BioISAC offers some speculation on the motive, which it bases on the malware's behavior. The main role of this malware, the ISAC's report says, is still to download, manipulate files, send main.dll library if possible, deploy other modules, and remain hidden. First, Tardigrade's operator seems interested in stealing intellectual property from the biomanufacturing industry. The second objective seems to be staging, battlespace preparation, and establishing persistence with a view toward further operations. Finally, the researchers think that at least some of those subsequent operations may have been ransomware attacks. BioISAC offers recommendations for organizations in the biomedical sector that may be at risk. First, review your biomanufacturing network segmentation. Run tests to verify proper segmentation between corporate, guest, and operational networks. Most facilities use remote logins with shared passwords to operate key instrumentation. Enforcing segmentation is essential. Second, work with a biologist and automation specialist to create a crown jewels analysis for your company. Ask, if this machine was inoperable overnight, what would be the impact? And how long would it take to recertify this instrument? Third, test and perform offline backups of key biological infrastructure. That should include, the ISAC says, ladder logic for biomanufacturing instrumentation SCADA, and historian configurations and batch record system. Finally, inquire about lead times for key bioinfrastructure components, including chromatography systems, endotoxin, and microbial contamination systems. That final point is worth considering when studying the risks associated with any industrial system. Many components may need to be replaced after a successful attack, and they're not always immediately available right off the shelf. Domain registrar and hosting company GoDaddy had disclosed in an SEC filing a major data breach affecting up to 1.2 million active and inactive managed WordPress accounts. The breach began, GoDaddy believes, on September 6th. The company discovered it on November 17th, and investigation remains in progress. The essential points of the disclosure are these. Quote, The original WordPress admin password that was set at the time of provisioning was exposed. If those credentials were still in use, we reset those passwords. For active customers, SFTP and database usernames and passwords were exposed. We reset both passwords. For a subset of active users, the SSL private key was exposed. We are in the process of issuing and installing new certificates for those customers. End quote. GoDaddy's security team believes the attackers used a compromised password to access GoDaddy's provisioning system for its managed WordPress service. Gizmodo has announced its intention to release, to responsibly disclose, as Gizmodo puts it, the Facebook papers first reported by the Wall Street Journal and provided to committees of the U.S. Senate. The Facebook papers record internal discussions of the design and operation of Meta's Facebook and Instagram platforms, recently controversial over allegations that their very design conduces the spread of hate, misinformation, and material that's harmful to minors. 
Gizmodo and its partners at New York University, the University of Massachusetts Amherst, Columbia University, Marquette University, and the American Civil Liberties Union will be sifting through the material and releasing it as they complete their review. The responsibility in the disclosure lies in the group's avowed intention to avoid perpetuating harm. Quote, We believe there's a strong public need in making as many of the documents public as possible, as quickly as possible. To that end, we've partnered with a small group of independent monitors who are joining us to establish guidelines for an accountable review of the documents prior to publication. The mission is to minimize any costs to individuals' privacy or the furtherance of any harms while ensuring the responsible disclosure of the greatest amount of information in the public interest. End quote. There's also an acknowledgement that simply dumping the material, which was provided by Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen, could cause harm in other systemic ways. Quote, Beyond privacy reasons, the documents require additional review to ensure that we aren't just handing criminals and spies a roadmap for undermining what controls Facebook does have in place to defend against propaganda that spreads lies, hate, and fear. That would undermine any benefit the world stands to reap from this act of whistleblower justice. End quote. It's worth remembering in this context that whatever the company's other faults may or may not be, Facebook's record of exposing coordinated inauthenticity, the deliberate use of bogus accounts by mostly governments to spread disinformation, has been seen as a positive one. And finally, the headwinds NSO group faces appear to be blowing harder. The Intercept tool vendor was sanctioned earlier this month by the United States, and reputational damage continues to press the company. Bloomberg reported yesterday afternoon that Moody's Investor Service cut NSO Group's rating to CAA2, which is eight degrees below what's considered investor grade. The company, Moody says, faces a risk of default on approximately $500 million in debt. NSO Group's cash burn is expected to continue for the remainder of the year as it loses customers and as U.S. sanctions begin to bite. Among the big accounts NSO Group has lost, as revelations of the controversial use of its tools emerged, was MIT Technology Review reports the government of France, which was nearing a decision to acquire the company's Pegasus Intercept tool before it backed out. News that French politicians were among those on other nations' Pegasus target list did not help the company's sales. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber.
In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Universities find themselves in the crosshairs of ransomware operators, and given their size and complexity of their mission, it's not surprising. Rick Longenecker is CISO at Open Systems, a provider of managed detection and response products. He joins us with insights on the challenges universities face. You've got anywhere between one and you know twenty thousand students on a campus. You know, people in an interesting time of their lives. I remember back in the day when I was in school. Uh, Napster, other things, right? So you can definitely have uh, a lot of different things. Research, you know, uh, you could say hackers among the students, et cetera, um, activists, et cetera. So it it just makes the whole bit with the university, you know, having a a large student population quite quite interesting. And at the same time, especially, you know, at, at many universities now, I mean, they're obviously a great source of IP innovation and other things all over the world. And uh, so that that makes things quite interesting and, and quite from an IP perspective. And if you look at the other end of things, they, they typically have, you know, reasonable endowments uh, or, or sponsorship based on the university. So you you also know that, um, you know, there's a there's a bit of funding or a way uh, to 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 get something of value out of them uh, monetarily. And on top of it, uh, they hate they all hate bad publicity. Yeah, I mean, uh, every university wants to maintain the absolute best publicity they can, best reputation, and so they're they're interested in, in handling problems. You could say sometimes internally, right? Uh, and you can even relate that to you know athletics, you know, uh, athletic associations and other things. And, and cyber is the same, right? Uh, people yeah. want to know that their kids are going to a good university, handle security well, and then from the other end, uh, you know, many universities. Um, don't necessarily uh, fund or, or have the IT teams uh, or be able to recruit the right IT teams that you might be able to see at, uh, you know, let's say a Fortune 500 or something. Some countries and some places, you know, around the world, I've been a pretty global guy. You worked for the UN for a while and things. Um, you know, they actually have certs, you know, computer emergency response teams for their universities. But especially we see in the States, um, we, we don't necessarily have that because we have so many universities and it's so widespread across states. So it really kind of represents a unique problem where, where you've got this, this pot of people on a campus that can present some very interesting challenges for an IT team that need you know, to maintain a great reputation 
and then on the other end, maybe the, the, the IT teams that aren't necessarily capable of not handling the problem and, and not a lot of, you could say, government or centralized guidance or support in, in order to actually manage and meet the problem. So it's, it's, it's kind of the perfect storm. <laughs> it really strikes me that, you know, particularly for a large university, that it, it is, uh, it's like a little city. I mean, they're providing housing and food and uh, transportation, uh, uh, you know, heating and air conditioning, you know, all of the, the basics of everyday life. And with, within that complexity is a, a long list of potential targets. Exactly. And it, it it's definitely has like an immediate uh, potential to impact people. Uh, you know, it's, if you talk about safety, other things, and it fully operations. I mean, if you look at, at during COVID, almost every university had to transition, like every business, um, to to completely uh, virtual operations. Well, let's talk about some recommendations there for how universities can get in front of this. Talking about MDR specifically, uh, is there... Is there a benefit for organizations who are taking advantage of managed detection and response that that MDR provider likely has a view into many organizations beyond their own? So that sort of shared incoming information benefits everybody. So so many organizations presented that unless they invest millions, they, they can't actually set up an ops and, and fusion center, et cetera. They, you know, they just can't keep up with it. And so many organizations right now, including universities, just to just have a million security tools. I mean, there's there's a, a thousand new cyber startups in Israel this year. I think last year, the year before, somebody said that you know there was there was a different studies that are out, and there's more than nine thousand cyber companies. And just especially at you could say university perspective, there's the the possibility to bring a lot of different options in, and that literally makes it difficult to provide focus. And, um, and and actually to to dwell on what you actually need. And if you look at actual threat intelligence, you know, from a single university to digest that, create that, et cetera, even if you take in feeds and, and make, um, you know, different integrations, whether it's sticks or MIPS, MISP or something else, and other news every day. Hmm. And a lot of the UN agencies, just like academia, don't necessarily talk to each other, right? So when an incident happens in one place, it's not necessarily communicated in the other. And, and you know, indicators of compromise, IOCs are shared, but just like a lot of government and the education sector, it's not necessarily shared within a, a rapid period of time. And um, I, I even go back to my time there when I was in Geneva, Switzerland, and WannaCry, not Petya, was happening. At the time, we didn't necessarily have a CERT completely organized or a SOC, and, and so we relied on outsourced services, and actually that's just the continued way of, of actually working, as I mentioned before. It takes, it takes time to do this. The education you know, sector kind of has the same thing. Um, if you have a provider that, that would work across a number of different sectors and or partners um, with other companies, and that really really can be beneficial to uh, the team who has, has a lot of other things to deal with in their digital journey. That's Rick Longenecker from Open Systems. And 
And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Uh, article caught my eye over on the Washington Post. This is written by Drew Harwell, and it's titled, Data Broker Shared Billions of Location Records with District During Pandemic. And the upshot of this is that uh, thanks to a FOIA request, um, it was uncovered that there was a company who provided the government with location data, millions of pieces of or billions of pieces of location data for the District of Columbia to use as part of their public health efforts during the pandemic. Here's my question. To what degree do our civil rights, uh, do our privacy rights go out the window when we are in an emergency situation. I think we can agree, certainly the onset of the pandemic was an emergency situation. So what happens then? Well, frankly, it's a major concern. At the federal level, there are reasonable constraints on emergency powers, um, depending on the circumstances. At the state level, just based on our constitutional system, states have the power to protect the health, safety, and welfare of their citizens. And that certainly makes its way to emergency powers. I know, at least in in Maryland and in almost all states, the governor's powers as it relates to emergencies are relatively limitless. Once there's a declared emergency, uh, in most circumstances, the governor can control ingress and egress from a particular area. They can issue, you know, mandatory curfews, quarantine and isolation. They can suspend, in most states, any law or statute that is inhibiting the emergency response. And in some other circumstances, you know, I know this is true in Maryland, they can actually compel people who have experience in healthcare services, so doctors, nurses, et cetera, to get on the front lines against their will and participate in a public health response. Wow. So these powers are extremely broad, and there's been a concern with The COVID-19 pandemic, yes, it's been a real-world emergency. You know, we've lost 700,000 people, so you can't minimize the impact of it. Right. But how long are we going to be under these uh, emergency conditions? Most states are still under some version of a declared disaster, an emergency declaration, which gives their governments pretty broad powers. And, you know, taking a a somewhat pessimistic view on this, we're probably going to be dealing with COVID in one way or another for at least the next several years. And, you know, there are going to be these cycles of uptick in case, and then people get boosters, and there's a downtick. But that means, you know, we might not see a cessation of these emergency declarations, and that will allow states and localities like the district did here to do things that might not be kosher uh, in the absence of an emergency. Hmm. Uh, So that's something that people have to be concerned about and and be vigilant about. Well, let's talk about – I mean this case in particular, we're talking about location data gathered by our mobile devices. Right. Could an argument be made that uh, gathering this kind of data is um, less intrusive than – setting up checkpoints, you know, like when you're trying to to establish whether or not people are obeying – things you put in place for social distancing, for staying at home, those sorts of things. If you can do that in a passive way, could that perhaps be less unsettling to the community than having people out on the streets with guns, you know, enforcing this sort of thing? Am I 
Is this at all a, a, a decent argument in your mind? It is a decent argument. You know, the flip side to that is it's not as effective of a tool because there mm. really isn't an, an enforcement mechanism. Right. You can get data on people's traveling habits. So, ah, oh, looks like there were a lot of cell phones at this frat house in Georgetown. Right, right. On uh, Saturday it looks night, like they're, yeah. yeah, they're not uh, <laughs> observing, uh, you know, isolation and, and social distancing policies. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, you know, that data is not – there are ways to de-anonymize it, as we know, but it is anonymized, at least in its raw form. And according to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, their researchers, they looked into this data. They were the one that submitted the FOIA request. There hasn't been an abuse or there hasn't been alleged abuse from law enforcement and how they've handled this data. So it is less severe. It is less restrictive than having boots on the ground, sending in the National Guard, uh, et cetera. Is this something that we would want to continue indefinitely? Uh, I think that's a, a separate question. But I, I, yeah, I think it's it's absolutely less intrusive than many of the other methods that were used or could be used to enforce public health measures. What would be the methods by which the state's ability to do these sorts of things in an emergency situation could be dialed back? There have been proposals that have passed in a limited number of states. I think they've probably been proposed in every single state Mm. by the state legislatures to rein in governor's powers during an emergency. We saw this effort in Maryland. It went nowhere, but it was proposed. There there are probably a dozen or so bills that sought to curb the governor's emergency powers. Mm -hmm. So, for example, a governor could declare an emergency for 30 days, but after 30 days, it would have to be ratified by the state legislature in one form or another. Oh. Otherwise, uh, that declaration would be discontinued. I see. Or just revising emergency powers to take some, you know, certain powers away from the governor. So maybe things like uh, you keep things like controlling egress and ingress from a affected disaster zone. Keep that, but do away with compulsory service for for health workers. You can try and dial down some of the specific powers. But this would be a third rail that the feds would stay away from, right? The state powers. It is, yeah. I mean, it it really is not the federal government's role. This is the states under our constitutional system have primary responsibility in, in responding to emergencies. The federal government's role is quite limited. It's really through the Stafford Act, can request money for a disaster declaration, and FEMA certainly. When we're talking about a multi-state emergency, they put you know play a, a role in coordination. And when we're talking about COVID, you know things like the CDC, right? Uh, that comes into play. But in terms of emergency response um, and bringing the the hammer down in terms of government regulations, that is that is really something that happens at the state level. Frankly, no matter who your governor is. I I would say it's unlikely a governor is going to sign a bill in most circumstances limiting their own powers. Right, right. So, you know, that's the type of thing you're probably going to need a veto-proof majority for for something like that. All right. Well, interesting stuff for sure. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It will save you time and keep you informed. Also, listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. 
Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Brandon Karp, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Falecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Trey Hester, filling in for Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.